1: Good morning, and thank you for joining host Cheryl Esposito for an intriguing hour of leading conversations. Each week, Cheryl brings together big thinkers to the Voice America Business Channel. Now, here's your host, Cheryl Esposito.
2: Well, good morning, everyone, and welcome to Leading Conversations. This is Cheryl Esposito. Today, we have a special pleasure. Our two guests, This morning. One is a guest who we have had before and the second is a guest who's joining him doing fantastic work in the world along with him. We have Stephen M. R. Covey and Greg Link. They are co-founders of the Global Speed of Trust practice and co-authors of a new book, Smart Trust, Creating Prosperity, Energy and Joy in a Low Trust World. Hey guys, welcome to the show. Hey,
3: Cheryl! Great to be with you.
2: It's great to have you both here. So I need to know from each of you. So, Greg, where are you today?
4: Uh, I am in the uh, snowy <laughs> Rocky Mountains in Utah, in
3: Alpine.
2: Ooh, I bet it's beautiful.
3: And and yeah, just to bring light,
2: light snow. And Stephen, where so, are you and today? And just to
3: bring balance in the world, since Greg is where there's snow. Yeah. I'm on the sunny. Beaches of Hawaii.
2: <laughs> oh, so there are a lot of people who are jealous of each of you. <laughs> the skiers want to be where you are, and the sunbathers want to be where you are, Stephen. And it's, it's great that we can do this with the magic of technology, right? You know? and, yeah. a
4: great way to great way to start a new year in January.
2: Absolutely, absolutely. So, so let's let's get down to business here. Um, you know, Stephen, we had you on the show in the past, um, and we talked about your book, "The Speed of Trust," and this whole concept of trust um, is becoming bigger and bigger in our world, not just in business organizations, but in governments and nonprofits around the world. And and I dare say, even in um, our media, people are beginning to wonder if they can even trust what the media says. I mean, trust is a big issue. When did you begin to notice that this was a theme that needed to be addressed?
3: Well, you know, you're exactly right, Cheryl. It's, it's, a, it's a huge issue. It's become so topical, so relevant for everyone, because we're seeing a lack of trust or a loss of trust almost everywhere we turn. And it's interesting because the, the first book, um, The Speed of Trust, I wrote in 2006, and, and even then highlighted that there was really a crisis of trust going on. But what when this really accelerated was with the global financial crisis, where we began to see a loss of trust everywhere in in economic systems and structures and banks and between consumers and banks and and so forth and since that time it's reverberated and it's it's really, really uh, taken hold in fact Greg and I were at a at a global conference um, the World Economic Forum in September 2008 right at the time that we saw the Lehman Brothers go under and Mm -hmm. parliaments and congress was voting on emergency measures to keep things afloat and at that time uh, we were at the conference and they And the participants who were very informed from over 90 nations all across the world at the World Economic Forum, they voted that the number one challenge we were facing in the world at that time was a loss of trust and a loss of confidence more than anything else, even more than the global financial crisis, because it's really the loss of the trust and the confidence that exacerbates The global financial crisis—it exacerbates everything else, and and since that time, it's kind of continued and perpetuated, and where it's on everyone's mind now, and they see the low trust in, like you said, in media, and government, and politics, and business, and or in healthcare, and education, and churches, and in most institutions, and it's really turned into um, a crisis, and and that's why the the subtitle of our book is around uh, around creating prosperity and energy and joy in a low trust world, because today it's become increasingly a low-trust world.
2: Right. Well, Greg, I know that you are a really practical guy, and I know that in working with CEOs and leaders around the world, um, you sometimes have a tough job helping those folks get into what Is often termed as that touchy feely stuff. And trust would, right? Yeah, you know, so trust falls in that category. So, how is it that you have this conversation with them? You know, how do you open this conversation?
4: Well, fortunately, Stephen and I have the advantage of being very pragmatic, and we came at this uh, as business leaders. We, uh, together, Stephen was the CEO of the Covey Leadership Center, which became the largest uh, training leadership development uh, organization in the world uh, before we merged with Franklin Quest. And... through that process, we've signed the front of the checks, as they say, and so Mm -hmm. we've been uh, uh, forced to have that pragmatic view. So we have been able to, and Stephen did an eloquent job in speed of trust and then again in smart trust, we've been very able to present this in terms that the uh, uh, C-suite and the leaders and the business owners understand. And, And fundamentally, the easy way to say that is we've made a business case for trust. Uh, We've expressed it in economic terms, uh, that everything is a function of speed and cost. And uh, as costs go up, or excuse me, as trust goes down, costs go up, and speed goes down, and that really does impact relationships. It affects companies, and it really gets the intention of these uh, these executives. There's several other metrics also that the executives have found that they can uh, and business owners can measure trust. One of them specifically would be turnover, and uh, for organizations, they spend thousands and thousands and millions and millions, depending upon the size of the organization replacing and training and rehiring, etc, And so for them, the cost of turnover is extraordinary, and the high-trust organizations is extremely low. SAS, for an example, is a big software firm that has 1% turnover or 2% turnover in an industry, the software industry, that has a 20% turnover. And uh, that they have 11,000 employees, so that translates into about $70 million a year in savings for them uh... in their organization and so it's a very uh... easy case really once you get the uh... executives or the business owners ear uh... to think about it and uh, that's one thing that's also true for the individuals and uh, people that have jobs that aren't the ceo's being able to make the business case for trust uh, dramatically affects your influence and gives you credibility uh, with that audience to express some of the ideas that you may have to make your organization uh, a higher trust organization. And so it really does uh, get their ears. And now all the press that you and Stephen have been talking about is reinforcing. So we're really finding a resurgence in their interest, their willingness to uh, listen and the evidence that uh, we talk about in Smart Trust that points to all these organizations that are profiting and, and having prosperity. As a matter of fact, uh, high trust organizations, the research shows, are three times more profitable than low trust organizations. Mm. And uh, at the individual level, people that are high trust are the last to be laid off, the first to be promoted, get right. the biggest budgets, etc. So, right. It, uh, well, you know, I've heard it.
2: Case. I've heard it said that. Um, People join organizations, and they leave their managers. And Uh so that really speaks to the whole issue of, you know, do I trust this manager, this leader, to have... my best interest at heart? Do I trust this manager or leader to know what they're doing, to be able to facilitate action? Uh, You know, I mean, if, if none of that's possible, then why would I stay as an employee? Why would I stay in that organization? But it's really the leader or the manager who I don't trust. I may like the organization. I may still think they have a great mission, but not good enough to stay.
4: Well, and the the
3: research backs that up. It, it, it backs it up, and 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 let me add that that uh, one of the key points we make in, in in this new book, Smart Trust, is how the the energy that we're talking about, you know, creating prosperity, energy and joy. The energy we're talking about includes the engagement of people. And and um, to engage your people, to attract people, retain people, engage them in their work is so vital. And, and companies are really focused on how they can increase the engagement. But you just you just expressed it, Cheryl. You want to engage your people. Trust them. Create trust. Create a culture of high trust. That engages them more than anything else but what disengages someone is when they're not trusted and you're right they do join organizations and they leave managers and they leave when there is a a distrustful relationship when they're not trusted and there's nothing that disengages quite like that and as a result you see all kinds of not only disengagement but then you see the turnover and then that becomes a very expensive proposition compared to when there's high trust You see high engagement. Nothing engages people like being trusted, and that not only engages them, they stay and they perform extremely well, and you get all the economics that flow from that. And so um, it's kind of a a virtuous upward cycle when you create a culture of high trust, and you get the dividends that flow with that compared to when there's distrust. You you pay the so-called trust taxes, low trust taxes that that really plague organizations everywhere.
2: Well, you know, you point to something in the book that I find really important. Um, you talk about self-trust and how key that is to creating an environment of trust. Could you, one of you speak to that?
3: Sure. Let me, this is Stephen. Let me go ahead and, and uh, take a first cut. Um, the, the whole premise is that you can't sustain trust with other people if at the end of the day... You don't trust yourself. Mm-hmm. And because at some point you'll project that distrust out into other, onto other people, into relationships, onto teams, mm-hmm. into the systems and structures that you design. Because if you don't trust yourself and, and you're fundamentally untrustworthy, not worthy of trust, then that ultimately it's manifest out it it ripples out at some point maybe not initially but at some point it will and so the first starting point and this is one of the key five actions of smart trust that we talk about in the book is, um, is that you start with yourself and starting with yourself really means answering two key questions and the first is what you just posed Cheryl and that is this do I trust myself do I trust myself and the second question is Do I give to others a person they can trust? That is, do I give to my team a leader they can trust? Do I give to my partners a partner they can trust? So that self-trust, starting with yourself, is so vital, and it really flows out of having uh, having a combination of character and competence. And the more you can increase that character and that competence, that makes you more credible. And the more credible you are, the more self-trust you have and the more self-confidence that you have uh we tell we we share the story that that we uh heard first from uh, peter guber in his book tell to win and it's a great story we put in the smart trust book that shows um uh, a magic johnson the the basketball player that played for the los angeles lakers and and was a, a great player um hall of fame player everyone knows magic johnson well when he was a rookie um uh, in his very first year, the Lakers were in the NBA Finals, and and um, and they were in Game Six was coming up, but in Game Five they had just lost Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, who is the MVP of the league and the and the superstar, and and uh, he'd just gone down to injury, and so the entire Lakers team was depressed, and this 19-year-old rookie at the time, Magic Johnson, you know, first year, 19 years old. He sees the, the discouraged teammates because they just lost Kareem. He's out for the rest of the series. And they're thinking, there's no way we can win. So even though they're up 3-2, to two, they've got to go back to the opponent's home court. And they're saying, there's no way we can win. And, and Magic looks around and he says, come on, what's wrong with you? And he goes, wait, I know what's wrong with you. You're all worried because we just lost Kareem. Well, let me tell you, let me tell you something, teammates. I'll be Kareem. I'll be Kareem. And and uh, you can count on that. And so they got on the plane to fly out there, and, and Pat Riley, the coach, says that seat 1A was Kareem's seat. And no matter what, you didn't sit in Kareem's seat, and even if Kareem wasn't there, and so and that, Kareem would put a sign up saying, this is Kareem's seat. Don't sit here. Well, Magic gets on the plane, and he goes right to seat 1A, and he sits down. It. <laughs> Why? Because he says, I'll be Kareem, and he goes out, and he plays center. This is a point guard. He plays center, the, the tallest position in basketball. He plays center. He scores in that sixth game. He scores 42 points, gets 15 rebounds. And and uh, leads the Lakers to a championship game, and and then in the when he's interviewed afterward, he he says, "This one's for you, big fellow, Kareem. This one's for you." <laughs> and and but see, he had such self trust, self confidence that grew out of his character and out of his competence that it gave him a sense of I trust myself, I can play Kareem, and not only that, all his teammates rallied behind it. They were inspired by it. They want, to, they want to follow someone that they can trust, and it trusts themselves, and, and Magic Johnson illustrated that. That was in the world of sport. It translates into all aspects of life.
2: That's mm, so, it's a great story. So I want to say on this for a minute, we, before we go to break, you know, how, do, how does someone know if they trust themselves or if they have what's sometimes known as overconfidence?
4: Well, um, you know, there is a self-knowledge. We have a tendency to know ourselves better uh, than others do, and a lot of times when we uh, as Stephen said, project distrust It's because we, we don't have confidence in ourselves. And so right. when you look at the, the opposite of that where somebody does uh, have overconfidence, uh, it really is difficult to discern. But the way you do it is, is just like we talked about in making the business case. You've mm. got to look at the track record. And uh, what is their track record? What is their history? What have they done? Uh, what is their motive? That's another thing you can question. And so it becomes pretty evident to others and perhaps not to the person who's overconfident sometimes without sometimes some fairly brutal feedback uh, politicians are excellent at this. They, they can charge along acting like nothing's wrong and ignoring uh, some of the things that that argue uh, that the case that they're making for themselves is completely the opposite of the way they've behaved for the last twenty years and it's the track record that uh, is probably the easiest way to, to uh, differentiate those that are uh, really legitimately credible And have a track record of of, uh, taking the high ground, and those that are a little bit uh, over exuberant, maybe a little egomaniac uh,
2: about it. Makes a lot of sense. We're going to go to break, and when we come back, we're going to drill deeper into this whole concept of smart trust. We'll be right back.
1: consulting, developing leaders worldwide. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. We appreciate you joining our leading conversations today. If you would like to participate in today's conversation, please call us now at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. Now back to your host, Cheryl.
2: welcome back to Leading Conversations. This is Cheryl Esposito. Today, our guests are Stephen M. R. Covey and Greg Link, the co-founders of the Global Speed of Trust and the co-authors of the new book, Smart Trust, Creating Prosperity, Energy, and Joy in a Low Trust World. Okay, guys, so let's get real here. You know, trust is a big issue in our lives. Um, People so often say um, they don't know how to define trust, but they know it when they see it or feel it. Um, You can meet somebody face-to-face and you have this what we call gut feeling, you know, whether you trust them or not, whether you have anything to base that on or not. How much of that goes on in organizations?
3: Well, this is Stephen. I think that um, quite a bit of that actually goes on, and see, in a sense, what you're describing there, Cheryl, is is what we call the the judgment that people make about whether they can trust somebody, and and um, and and we want that judgment to be smart, to be informed, to be to be uh, aware of the the situation, and a lot of it does come right from our gut which is a good thing, but at the same time, we need to to, to make sure that we're aware of the risk involved and, and, and the credibility of the people involved so that we, we make good decisions. So we kind of look at it this way. That, that, that Let me paint two extremes that Greg and I talk about in the book. Here's one extreme. One extreme is what we might call blind trust. Mm-hmm. And blind trust is the person or the organization that just indiscriminately trust anyone and everyone. Okay. And so they're trusting everyone and they're just saying, yeah, we trust, we just trust people and that's what we do. And the, and so they trust everyone, regardless of the circumstances or the situation. And that's not very smart in a low trust world because not everyone can be trusted. There's scams everywhere we turn, there's scam artists, there's you know con men and so forth. And so being at that extreme of blind trust it, in the long run, well, you'll get burned. It's dangerous. It's being gullible, not smart. So that's one extreme. Now, the other extreme, we often see people swing the pendulum to the other side to where they move to distrust, and they lead out with suspicion. And they, and they take the notion that because you can't trust some, that you'll no longer trust anyone because it's too dangerous, too risky to trust people. So these people, organizations, lead out with suspicion. They don't trust anybody, you know, except for maybe themselves or maybe a few people only. And, And they say, you know, it's just too risky to trust other people. Unaware of the risk, of not trusting people. And see, they've gone to the other extreme to where they don't trust anyone but themselves. And what they do is they foreclose all kinds of possibilities. They don't even see right. the possibilities because they, they start out with distrust and, and then they find all the evidence to kind of back them up and prove it. And so neither of those extremes is where you want to be. Uh, what we're advocating is smart trust is really a third alternative from the extreme of blind trust or gullibility or distrust and suspicion. It's smart trust, and it's really about judgment. And it's really a blending and a harmonizing of your heart and your head. The heart is, represents your propensity or willingness to trust. The head represents your analysis, your where you assess the situation, the risk, and the credibility of the people. And if someone has, you know, all heart and no head, that is, they have a high propensity to trust and very low or poor analysis... That's the person that falls into blind trust. They, they trust right. too much, and they get burned because they don't assess the risk and the situation and the people involved. They don't want to be there, but nor do you want to be on the other side where it's all head and no heart, where it's a low propensity to trust and very strong analysis. In those cases, you'll find all the reasons why no one can be trusted, <laughs> right. and you won't even see possibilities that are out there. Right. But if you find this third alternative of smart trust, high propensity to trust, equally high analysis, that gives you judgment. And that is a blending of heart and head. And that's, that is where the informed judgment comes out. Oftentimes it could be your gut. Sometimes your gut might represent just one of those notions and, and, and as opposed to the balancing of it. So you've got to kind of assess the whole package. But that's what this book is about, It's really trying to help people get good at learning how to trust smartly in a low-trust world and, and how to lead out with trust and operate with high trust. In a low trust world, and do it in a way that creates possibilities while minimizing the risks that are out there by not being foolish and, and blind with your with your trust, and, and so that's the whole premise. And and uh, um, and and we're trying to say this is something that you can really get good at and skilled as as a competency and the ability to create and extend this kind of smart trust with people and organizations everywhere.
2: You know, uh, I am thinking about how applicable this is in organizations and outside of organizations but as I think about you know who's the person who has blind trust in organizations and I think of clients who um, delegate something and give it to someone who reports to them and they they give them kind of an outline this is kind of what you need to do and you know let me know how it goes. And, you know, they they have high propensity yep. to trust and there it is, that low analysis, right? And so then in a month they say, Well, what happened with that project? And that person hasn't mm-hmm. done very much and suddenly they're in trouble, right? And then you have yep. the 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 person who's the leader who is the micromanager who says, It's actually easier for me to do it myself. So they either do that or they hold someone's hand all the way through every single step and they make them check in, you know, every five minutes on a project. And, you know, what that does, of course, is it gives people the sense of not only do they think I'm stupid, but they don't trust me at all. And it creates so much work. Talking about slowing things down, right? That would affect the speed of trust, right?
4: Absolutely. Absolutely. And quite right. frankly, what you're, yeah, what you're speaking to, uh, that whole lack of clarification of expectations is what causes most grief and low trust in relationships and therefore in teams and organizations. And what the art of the deal is in between those two extremes, as Stephen expressed, in the judgment of holding people accountable and in having them return and report, but giving them the autonomy. So often, you know, a lot of micromanagers Delegate the responsibility, but they don 't delegate the authority or the ability to make any decisions, and so people are kind of hamstrung. Uh, the other thing that happens is, and this cuts both ways to the person delegating and the person receiving the delegation not having clarity of expectations, uh, particularly a by when as far as deadlines, etc. And so that's where a lot of the breakdowns occur. And so uh, some of the behaviors that we emphasize are are clarifying those expectations together but then holding people accountable. Interesting sideline, I was speaking to an executive the other day, and he was lamenting the fact that that, uh, you know, with this whole less is more that a lot of people are having to work uh, 60-hour work weeks to get everything done. And, and quite frankly, that, to Stephen and I, is a symptom of micromanagement. Yeah. The very fact that they're so involved in everything, the art, art of leadership and the distinction between management and leadership that leaps you from a, being just a mere manager to a leader is that ability to extend trust to others, but extend it, as Stephen expressed, smart in a way that everybody understands the expectations, the specifications, the buy whens and they've actually been delegated not only the responsibility but also the authority.
2: Mm, that makes a lot of sense. So you, you have an action, act, the third action in the smart trust process you call Declare Your Intent. Stephen, can you speak to that?
3: Yes, de- Declare Your Intent is the whole notion that um, be clear, be transparent, particularly about your agenda and about your motive. Because, let me, because if you don't declare your intent, in other words, declare what you're trying to do and why you're trying to do it. So both the what, but also the why, the why behind the what, your motive, your agenda, see, your intent. If you don't declare it, what happens is People, they ascribe motive to you, <laughs> and they usually do it one of two ways. Either they guess or they project, and and they tend to project kind of their worst fears. You know, I wonder what he's doing here. I wonder what she's trying to accomplish here. i bet that they're trying to butter us up, and maybe they're going to downsize later. You know, they, they, people tend to as, ascribe motive to people, and, and they usually will ascribe kind of based on their fears or worst case scenarios or, or their projections. And and the whole principle here is no guessing. No 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 projecting. Instead, declare your intent. There's not a hidden agenda here. It's an open agenda. Nothing to hide. I'm transparent. The more transparent you can be, the more you can declare openly your intent then the quicker and the faster you can build trust because people suddenly don't have to guess. Now, at first, if there's a low-trust environment and you come out and you declare your intent, sometimes people don't believe you. They think that you're manipulating or trying to do something. So just just stay at it. Just stay at it and say, hey, here's what we're trying to do. Here's why we're declaring our intent. And over time, you'll win people over. I saw a company do this. Greg and I both did. This was... um, a company that was a private company, small company, and they wanted to engage their people more, involve them more in the business. And so they decided that going to an open book management system would be a good practice for them. And so they decided to open up their books. But already, at the time, there was a low-trust environment in their culture. And so that when they opened up their books, initially, people thought, you know, uh, this is fake. They're doing something here to, to kind of manipulate us, and, and they didn't believe it because the trust was already low. But but what this company did well is they stayed at it, and they declared their intent. They said, look, here's what we're trying to do. We're going to open our books. Here's why. Why? Because we want to involve you as partners. We want you more involved in the business. We want you making decisions for profitability, and 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 we want you to win when the company wins. And so we're going to engage you this way, and we know we haven't done it. We want to improve and get better and do this. It took them a while, but over time, people saw, hey, they were serious about it. They're sincere about it. These are real numbers. They are trying to engage us. And they stayed at it. They declared their intent, the why behind the what. They were transparent. And and people were able to say, you know what, this is real, and they could accelerate the building of trust. This is a great accelerator to build trust, and it overcomes the – the common tendencies that people have to just ascribe intent and motive, or to project, or or um, you know put out the worst case intent and motive, and this is a way to to bridge that. It's also a great way to to check your motive because you'd have a hard time declaring intent if it was entirely self serving. If the intent was really just about you and just, you know, I don't care about whether you win, I just want to win. So I'm declaring that publicly. You know, all of us would be embarrassed to do that. So it's a great test of what is my motive? What is our agenda here? What are we trying to do? And is it is it seeking mutual benefit? Is it seeking win win? Because if it is, you can build trust with that. If it's not, if it's just self serving, self promoting, all about me, just win or win lose in the long run, that's not going to build trust, and that's a good mm-hmm. test. And the test is, could I declare this? Would I declare this? Yeah. And, and so that's a, it's a great practice, and we've seen that people, leaders, companies that do this, they get better results, and they build trust better and faster.
2: Have you ever worked with someone, a leader in some organization, who, as you're having this conversation with them, they begin to have a sense that um, they don't trust people very much? they maybe didn't know that before
4: Ab- the light absolutely. goes on slowly
3: <laughs> <laughs> the light does go on
4: but it goes on slowly go ahead stephen
3: well i'm just going to say that that um Absolutely. There's there's uh, many times where people come to the realization that they have a low propensity to trust, and they they and and see the the fact that we create this idea of a blending, a harmonizing of heart and mind of a propensity to trust with analysis is what enables that to happen because because in their mind they're not being distrustful initially they just find up they just have all these reasons why they shouldn't be trusting somebody,
2: right, right. but when
3: you separate those pieces out into another, there's really two pieces, propensity to trust and analysis, and suddenly they realize they don't have to give up the analysis. No, they just suspend it. Mm-hmm. Where's your propensity to trust, your bias to trust to begin with? And sometimes they come to the conclusion, they, they recognize, you know what, I realize that I'm very good at this analysis. I don't start with really a high propensity to trust, and as a result, I find all the reasons why I can't trust anyone. Let me give you an example of this, Cheryl. Uh, Greg and I and our team were working one time with a group, an executive team, 23 managers on the team, 23 executives. And so in private one-on-one conversations with each of the 23 managers, we had this kind of conversation. We said, look, here's a picture of you and a picture of your 22 peers and colleagues. So we had these pictures. And then we said, okay, here's what we want you to do. Take each of the 22 peers in the form of the picture and put them into one of, one of two piles. Either I tend to trust this person or I tend to not trust this person. Mm-hmm. And you know, the first, the first response is, is this anonymous? <laughs> People want to make sure it's anonymous. And then once they, they're assured of that, they then said, okay, well, it was amazing. This group, for the most part, trusted each other. And and uh, they went through and here's here's the common response. It was you know I trust this person, trust this person, trust, 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 trust. And occasionally there was ah, I don't really trust. And trust, 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 trust. Don't trust. And then once in a while we got a I don't know yet. They're they're too new. Mm-hmm. But for the most part this group trusted each other. But it was interesting. There were three people from the twenty three that when they went through that pile it looked like this. It was. I don't trust, I don't trust, don't trust, don't trust, don't trust, don't trust, don't trust. trust. Then occasionally it was, uh, maybe a little. (laughs) Don't trust, don't trust, don't trust, don't trust, trust, don't trust, maybe a little. You know, there were three people that just didn't trust anybody. What was interesting was those three that didn't trust anyone, in turn, those were the three that no one trusted. (laughs) Trust is reciprocal. They didn't trust anyone, and guess what? It got reciprocated right back. But that Process was a great awakening because everyone else on the team was able to trust the same people that those people weren't able to trust, mm-hmm. and, and these people became aware—at least one of them did—that that um, you know what, I have a low propensity to trust, and 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 um, in one of their persons' cases, it's because they didn't trust themselves, and they projected that distrust out. But it was an awakening, an awareness-building process of of someone realizing that it it's not just all analysis, it's also propensity to trust. And sometimes that's a, an aha experience. But like Greg says, it doesn't just happen overnight. People have to kind of be willing to really look at this, reflect upon this, and, and kind of follow this process of looking at two dimensions, a, a heart dimension, your propensity to trust, and the head dimension, the analysis, and separate the two and and realize that, hey, I might be strong in one and low in the other. And, 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 that, and when it does happen, it's a real aha experience for people.
2: So you have to be smart about your own level of and capacity to trust. We have more to talk about with Stephen M R Covey and Greg Link when we come right back.
1: Consulting, developing leaders worldwide. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. We appreciate you joining our leading conversations today. If you would like to participate in today's conversation, please call us now at 1 866 472 5790. That's 1 866 472 5790. Now back to your host, Cheryl.
2: And welcome back to Leading Conversations. This is Cheryl Esposito with Stephen M. R. Covey and Greg Link. We're talking about Smart Trust today. Their new book, Smart Trust, Creating Prosperity, Energy, and Joy in a Low Trust World, is just out. And so we have the luxury of talking to them just as this book is being released. So guys, you've been working in this field for a long time and and helping organizations build trust in their processes, in each other, in their leadership teams. You have five actions within that, and we've been talking about some of them. The fourth action um, is do what you say you're going to do. Now, one would think that that is kind of, uh, yeah, uh, you know, of course, people would do that. But apparently that doesn't always happen. Greg, what do you think about that?
4: Well, the fastest way to uh, build trust And to grow trust is to do what you say you're going to do. It's also the fastest way to destroy trust. And so it it is common sense, but it's not common practice. And, uh, Cheryl, I would like to say, to put context to these uh, uh, five actions, we found that in our interviews and our research with all these different uh, leaders around the world that these were the common actions that they all take, uh, those that have high-trust organizations and that are high-trust leaders. And so one of the things that uh, this came... And was reinforced by an interview that uh, Stephen did with a CEO uh, that had uh, operations in 158 countries out of the uh, uh, European area, and uh, uh, he said that you know a lot of the leadership principles and a lot of the trust principles, as we've found, translate across culture and it's not a problem, et cetera, but there are localized uh, ways of, of doing things. And, but he said that he found the one thing that was common to all people in all these different uh, countries that they operated in is that you trust people who do what they say they're going to do. Everybody seems to have that value, even little kids. Uh, you know, when you, you make a promise to your child, they hold you accountable. Sure. Mom right. and daddy, you said. And so it, it applies uh, across the board. So we found that it is the fastest way to uh, look for an opportunity to grow trust is to make a promise and keep it. And even with somebody you've just met, you try to find something that you can offer to do and then make sure you follow through because it is you can grow your trust in your relationship faster by action than you can by promises. Mm. And following through is definitely it. And then also to be conscious and develop the skill to listen to yourself and not be casual with making promises.
2: Mm. No matter
4: who it's to, we have a tendency to have that in our families a lot. When you hear your your child or your teenager say, well, Dad, you promised. You didn't think of it as a promise, perhaps. You mentioned it, and to them that was a promise. And that gets back to what we talked about earlier about clarifying expectations.
2: Well, and that really points to the need for self-awareness, keen self-awareness at all times. I like to tell my clients uh, who are leaders in organizations, you know, you are never out of the spotlight. You are never off stage. You never have an opportunity to let down because people are watching you and listening to you every single moment. And so your words matter. Your actions matter. The way you look at people matters. And you better have some real keen (laughs) self-awareness in order to be effective and you're absolutely speaking to that now there's the 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 way we,
4: the way, just a sec, Cheryl. The way yep. we express that, to piggyback on what Stephen said earlier about declaring your intent, we judge others by their behaviors, their observable behaviors. We judge ourselves by our intentions. And so we'll say something like, well, I didn't mean to or whatever, because right. we may have had good intentions, but we may have behaved in a way that made people suspicious. And so that self-awareness you're talking about is paramount.
2: Wow. That makes a lot of sense. So the fifth part, trust action, lead out in extending trust to others, it, it sounds to me like what this means is, so don't wait, be the first. Is that right, Stephen?
3: Absolutely, it's right. Leaders go first. Hmm. They, they, they lead out. That's, what again, what distinguishes the leader from the manager, as Greg said earlier. The first job of any leader The first job of any leader is to inspire trust. The second job of that leader is to extend trust, to give it. And someone needs to go first. That's what a leader does. They go first. And yeah, there's a risk in trusting, there's also a risk in not trusting. And so you're trying to find that smart balance, that that smart trust, and and you lead out in extending trust to others. And I've seen too many people; they find all the reasons why they can't trust and why they're not being trusted, and therefore they can't trust, and they and they kind of perpetuate a low trust world. And and the danger of a low trust world is that we tend to become guarded and cautious. And so when there's when there's people aren't trusting or all around us. We tend to also not trust them, and then they reciprocate back. See, trust is is reciprocal in either direction. When we trust people, they tend to trust us. When we withhold trust from people, they tend to withhold trust from us. One reason why customers don't trust um, the companies is because the companies don't trust the customers. Same with employees. One reason why employees don't, doesn't trust their management is because the management oftentimes don't don't trust the employees and the employees reciprocate the distrust right back. But what leaders do is they create this trust. They lead out by extending trust smartly to others, and then their trust gets reciprocated, and you get the contagion effect in a positive way. Trust is contagious in either direction. Let's make it work for us. Let's create the trust. Let's extend the trust smartly, and you watch it come back to us many, many times. Let me give a couple of examples. Take uh, what Google is doing. Uh, Google is really an extraordinary story of success of how fast they have grown in just a short period of time. And and um, and they've done it uh, you know a whole variety of different ways. But let me tell you at the core of their their release of their talent has been that they trust their people. They have what they call twenty percent time. And twenty percent time means that one day in five, twenty percent of their time, they trust their engineers, their people to work on whatever it is that they want to work on. They don't They don't direct it. They don't lead it. They, they, they do that the other 80% of their time. But the 20% of their time, they say, look, you work on things, projects, things that excite you, that interest you, and that you think will benefit Google and our customers. And we trust you to do that. And see, a company that didn't trust their people would never do that. But... The, the people that at Google, they respond to this trust, and they're inspired by it. It brings out the best in them, and they give their best work, and they create all kinds of creative and inventive and innovative ideas and products. It's been estimated in some years as, many, as much as 50% of the Google products emerge from this 20% time, right. vastly disproportionate because people respond to being trusted. And and uh, uh, you see it with um, other companies, look at Southwest Airlines, 37 straight years of profitability in a brutal industry, the airline industry, okay. but they create such enormous trust in their people who then create it with their customers, and it gets reciprocated back. But they're not waiting on people. They're not waiting on this low-trust industry where hardly anyone trusts. They lead out. The leaders lead out. They create it. They extend it, and the trust gets reciprocated back. They do it smartly, but nonetheless, they do it. They create it. And that's what's needed in a low-trust world is someone to go first. And that's what a leader does. They go first. They don't wait on everybody else to become perfect before they can act and move. They lead out with it. And that's what we mean by this fifth action, lead out in extending trust to others. And there's people, leaders, organizations everywhere that are doing this, even in a low-trust world and getting great results.
2: You know, it makes me think about, you know, how does trust become part of the culture? And, you know, we have... CEO, revolving door CEOs these days, right? And and it seems that with each CEO that comes into organizations, um, there is a different way of doing business, a different way of interacting, a different way of engaging. And people stop having a sense of um, history or longevity or that they're, they can count on any specific type of culture in an organization. And, you know, trust as you say, it takes a while to build but very quick to to lose. It makes me wonder how fast can you build trust as part of your culture and then how do you maintain it as a legacy so that way beyond when that CEO is there, you know, when some CEO down the line is there, trust is still significant, a significant part of the culture. How do you do that?
4: Well, one of the things that... Uh... Requires is again this track record that we talked about earlier. And we, uh, one of the stories in the book that we tell is about a uh, company who had had several leaders and had been bought and sold a few times, and every new uh, owner had come in and said, hey, here, listen to the people, and here's all these things that are broken, and made a bunch of promises and never kept them, never followed through. And finally, the, the leader that we emphasize or talk about came in, and he, he had a town hall meeting with all the employees, identified 12 or 14 things that uh, were Important and needed attention right away, and he promised he would get on them and, and uh, within a month, he called another town hall meeting. He reported back to the culture that he had and to the team that he had uh, been able to uh, complete eleven or twelve of the items, and then that there were a couple more that were going to be a little bit longer term, but he reported on the progress uh, and that went a long way to uh, to restore trust another Examples in the, uh there's a book called Worst to First. We tell the story of Gordon Bethune, who was the tenth CEO of Continental Airlines. Uh, and uh so he was in a legacy where there was a uh, a legacy of distrust for sure. Ten, he said that ten,
3: when he's tenth ten CEO in ten years. Oh, yeah, yeah, in ten years, exactly. Yeah, yeah. He said when he came
4: into to uh his role the employees were kind of like abused children that had been uh, mistreated so much. And the first thing, or one of the first things he did, he took everybody out in the parking lot and burned the policy and procedure manuals that had been <laughs> built over time to these huge things. And uh, that was just a, a an act uh, to signal to the culture that things right. were going to change and things were going right. to be different. So. Those are the kind of things that can help uh, transform that uh, legacy of distrust. And then ultimately, to the opposite side, organizations uh, that uh, where the leader does an act of trust like that, and the, uh, that becomes a legacy. And, and like in Johnson & Johnson, where their credo has survived for decades uh, as yeah. the way that they behave inside of Johnson & Johnson, and it's even survived some tremendous mistakes that they – the the way that they responded to the Tylenol disaster 25 years ago is still spoken of today, yeah. and they've even, with some of their recent problems, compared themselves to uh, to that and realized that they've they've got some work to do.
2: So, well, you know, we only have, have a couple of minutes. We only have a couple of minutes okay. left, and and this really this speaks to the the whole issue of you know legacy mattering. It, it matters, and. You talk up in the book about creating your own renaissance of trust. And to me, that this is where you really begin to plant the seeds for legacy. So, Stephen, talk about that, because I want people to be, to go away from this conversation with a couple of things they can start doing right now.
3: Yes. I would say this, that this this legacy of trust, this renaissance of trust, we're making the point that here in the midst of this crisis of trust, as we started this discussion today, where there's low trust everywhere, all around us, at the same time, simultaneously and paradoxically... We're seeing a renaissance of trust. We're seeing people. We're seeing leaders. We're seeing organizations that are learning how to create trust and succeed with it, even in a low-trust world. They're not waiting on the world to, to make sure that everything can be safe to trust. They're, they're finding the appropriate way to extend smart trust. And I would just suggest that the two key things to, that all of us can do is coming back to what we were saying earlier about the, first, the, about the key jobs of leaders. The first job of a leader is to inspire trust. So I focus on myself. I look in the mirror. Do I trust myself? do I give to others a person they can trust? If I can answer those questions, that's a great starting point because now I'm a powerful agent of change and and people can look to me and trust me and I trust myself. I have an ability now to affect a lot of things and a lot of people with that. Then the second key job of a leader now is to extend trust, to give it. And this is the smart trust we're talking about. This is where it becomes a legacy, is that it doesn't just stop with me, that I'm trustworthy. No, I extend it. I pass it on. And Greg and I ask in the book about times that we've been trusted by other people, when maybe we didn't even trust ourselves, and how that inspired inspired us, brought the best out in us. And then to say, okay, now play it forward. Pass it on. Now let's extend similar trust to other people. For whom might we inspire to inspire by extending trust to them and where they then rise to the occasion. And and that's what we can do as leaders, is we can inspire trust and we can extend trust. We can give it to people, to organizations, to colleagues, to peers, to children, to spouses, to partners, and we can find the way to extend it. And when we do that, people respond to it. They're inspired by it. It brings out the best in them, and they reciprocate it back. And we can create a virtuous cycle of trust and confidence, creating more trust and confidence instead of the vicious downward cycle of distrust and suspicion. And that's what's needed in a low-trust world, is people leaders, organizations, true catalysts of creating high trust in a low-trust world. And each of us has a chance to be such a catalyst. It's like the words of Anne Frank. She said, how wonderful it is that nobody need wait a single moment before starting to improve the world. And it's true for all of us. We can start to improve the world by inspiring trust and then by extending trust.
2: Well, that's a great point to end on, Greg. Greg. Stephen, it's fabulous to have you here today. I can't believe we're already at the end of the show. So I know people are going to want to know more. They want to know how to get this book and how to learn more about Smart Trust and the Speed of Trust. So, where can they find out more about you?
4: Well, the easiest place to find out more about us and, and take advantage of some other resources that are available is at smarttrustbook.com. And as far as uh, getting the book, it's available, at their favorite uh, uh, bookseller, airport bookseller uh, on Amazon.com, BarnesandNoble.com. So it should be, it came out three days ago. It should be out anywhere they look.
2: Fantastic. Thank you so much, Stephen, for being here. Thank you, Craig, for being here. We so love it. And we'll for sure have you back again on another Leading Conversations. Cheryl,
3: you, you're Cheryl. delightful. Thank you. We, we appreciate it genuinely. Thank you.
2: Remember, everyone, to think big because the world could be a better place because of a conversation that matters. This is Cheryl Esposito.